Good morning, friends. Our scripture uh, passage this morning is Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 8 through 15. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced fault with false witnesses who testified, this, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. What does it look like to bear witness? My family and I got to go see uh, the play To Kill a Mockingbird at the Keller Auditorium uh, last week. You may be familiar with the wonderful novel. It's a story of a man, Tom, a black man who's falsely accused of sexual assault by a white woman. And much of the story happens in a courtroom. So the main character is a man named, a lawyer named Atticus Finch. You're probably familiar somewhat with the story. And so Atticus Finch, he's trying to determine who is telling the truth and who is lying. So the entire story is predicated on who is a true witness, who's, who's bearing true witness and who's bearing false witness. And you may be familiar, spoiler alert, but Atticus Finch shows that all the people who are testifying that Tom did this are false witnesses. Our justice system is, is predicated on telling the truth. If you are a witness in our justice system, you may have seen this on Law and Order or whatever, maybe you've done this yourself, you have to uh, swear an oath that goes something like this. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that you'll tell the, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? So help you God, if you're an atheist, you can replace God with under the uh, pains and penalties of perjury. So you have to say that because our entire system of justice, if justice is going to happen, is built on the fact that we assume that witnesses are true, that they're bearing true witness. And the way of Jesus is built on the same exact thing. And we're going to explore that today. We're in the series uh, On Mission, a study of the book of Acts. In front of us is this question, what does it look like to be a faithful church in America in 2022. Uh, our big read is out in the lobby. If you want to uh, purchase that and study along with us, that would be great. Th this idea of bearing witness goes back to the first message in the sermon, and it comes from the ver verse Acts 1-8, which is Luke's theme for the entire uh, book. He says, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my 
witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does it look like to bear witness for Jesus and do that faithfully? It looks like a man named Stephen. And John read the first portion of a very long passage that we'll read pieces of as we tell Stephen's story today. So let's dive in. It will be helpful if you have your Bibles in front of you because it's literally a really long passage. We're not going to read all of it. So hopefully you can return to it later this week in some way and read through uh, the spots uh, we missed. We're in Acts 6, and then we'll span all the way through the end of Acts 7. And we're in verse 18. Luke tells us Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, that he performed many signs and wonders among the people. If you're paying attention to Luke and Acts, you'll notice the same phrase was used of Jesus back in chapter 2. And this will begin uh, Luke's uh, comparing Stephen to Jesus. He, he essentially is going to say, Stephen is the, the true witness. Uh, what does it look like to bear witness to Jesus? It looks exactly like Stephen. So we're told that he's opposed. Stephen is opposed by this uh, group, the Synagogue of the Freedmen. We don't need to go deeply into that. Synagogues were like local Jewish churches. The freedmen were former slaves, Greek-speaking slaves that had been set free. And so this particular synagogue was heavily populated by this group of people. They did not like what Stephen was saying. And so they tried to debate him, and it didn't go well, because Stephen was brilliant, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so then they did what people do when they lose debates. They just make up lies. And so they just created these blasphemous things about Stephen. They took a part of a truth and twisted it, which is what we, we normally do. And so they said Stephen was saying things against Moses, the law of Moses, and against the, the temple. And so uh, th- these rumors went viral to the point where Stephen was hauled in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the supreme court for the Jewish uh, nation. So Stephen's in front of the, the supreme court, and uh, he, he, he bears witness. The, the high priest who oversees the Sanhedrin asks the question, are these charges true? And Luke is trying to tune us in to this idea of true witnesses. Is what Stephen's saying true? Is he the true witness or are they the false witness? That's the dichotomy that's going on in the text. So Stephen is a skilled orator. If you lived in the first century and you had any education, rhetoric was one of the classes you took. Uh, Speaking and articulating and reasoning were really, really important. Maybe we ought to bring that back for for us. We probably need a little of that help. Additionally, not only was Stephen a skilled orator, but we know he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke says that again and again and again. And this goes back to Luke, his gospel, the prequel to Acts. If you remember this portion, we we did it several months ago. Luke 12, 11, 12, this is what Jesus promised. When you're brought before the synagogues, the rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what to say. So we got this brilliant order filled with the Holy Spirit bearing witness to Jesus. So the speech spans throughout all of chapter 7. I encourage you sometime this week to read it all. I'll read portions of it as we work our way through. And what Stephen is doing is he essentially, like Jesus did so often, is flipping the script on his opponents. So Stephen, he, he comes in and he, he highlights all of the major things that are important to any Jewish man or woman, but he remixes it. One scholar said he's like a brilliant jazz musician if you like jazz, like a jazz improv musician that's taking the notes and then finding a new line through the story. 
So we're all inundated right now with political ads. I don't know, I am, I, I expect you are as well. We know whether we see the Republican or Democrat, what they're gonna say, right? We all know at this point what they're gonna say. There's nothing new here. And there's certain talking points if you're a Republican that you have to hit, and there's certain talking points if you're a Democrat that you've gotta hit, and we all know them, we all expect them. If you were a Jewish person today, there were certain talking points that you needed to hit to show you were the real deal. And Stephen does it. If you read through his speech, he mentions Abraham, the patriarchs, and Joseph, and Moses, and David, and Solomon. He mentions these crucial Jewish identity markers. The land, Jerusalem, the temple, inheritance, exile, liberation, return, circumcision, Egypt, check, 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 check. But this would be like, if we were listening to Peter's speech, and this is, I think, the Sanhedrin's feel of this, he hit all their spots, but he remixed the story and told this new story like, they were like, wait a second. It'd be like watching a TV ad, like, wait a second. This is something new. You're saying all the right things, but it's something brand new, and I'm not sure if I like it. That's what's going on in the speech. It's kind of a brilliant speech. He's flipping everything on set. So let's walk through it a little bit. So first, Stephen goes right with their accusations. And he highlights this man, Moses. And if you're, you're new to Christianity or the Bible, Moses was a key figure in the Old Testament. And Stephen walks through kind of the three 40-year chunks of Moses' life. The 40 years from when he was saved as a baby, he was raised in Pharaoh's house, and then he commits this murder because he sees the Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave. He flees to the desert, and he's there for another 40 years till he, he has this burning bush experience with the living God. And the living God tells him to go back to Egypt and set his people free. He does that. That's the next 40 years. The people disobey. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So Stephen's essentially telling that story. But he's remixing it because he's telling them that you actually oppose Moses. I don't oppose Moses. You oppose Moses just like the people did in the desert. And this is what he says. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, who was Moses' brother, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their hands had made. This will be a crucial line. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of prophets. He's quoting uh, the prophet Amos here. Did you bring me sacrifices and offering 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. He goes on and connects Moses to Jesus. And he says this, this is Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your very own people. He's remixing the story and he's putting now them on the defensive. He's saying, I stand with Moses. The Jesus that I follow stands with Moses. In the legacy of Moses, you are being just like the idolatrous people in the wilderness who created this weird calf with their own hand and worshiped it. How ridiculous is that? You're doing the same thing. And you might say, if you're following along with me, you might say, how were they doing the same thing? Now Stephen gets to the temple, the other accusation against him. And he's going to say the temple is their golden calf. Now the temple, it's, it's difficult having been in, in Jerusalem last year and, and seeing scale models and, and walking around the city. You can go online and Google it and see pictures. 
it was one of the greatest buildings that's ever been built. It just literally dominated the landscape. We, we can't fathom how important the temple was to the Jewish people in the first century. It would be the combination of our National Cathedral, our Supreme Court building, the White House, Congress, the Pentagon, all in one building. It was the epicenter of everything to the Jewish people, and it was monstrous. And Stephen says, this building you built with your own hands has become an idol to you. Stephen, uh, Stephen knew that, that when Jesus came and he said, it is finished, the veil of the temple that separated where God's presence was from the rest of the temple split in two. And that Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God, meant that there would be no further sacrifices needed. God exited the building. And so Stephen's telling them, you're literally worshiping an empty building now. Scott, in his book, he, he kind of makes the, the crack. This would be like telling uh, country musicians that Nashville doesn't matter, you know, something like that. It's hard to approximate how powerful this line is. And Stephen, this is what he says. He says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah here. As the prophet says, heaven is my home and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all things. Stephen knew at Pentecost that the spirit of the living God does not rest in the temple anymore. The spirit of the living God fell on God's people, the church, and he stood testifying and bearing witness to that reality. So he's brilliantly flipping the script on them. He's taking the two accusations made against him that you're hating on Moses and you're hating on the temple. And he's like, actually, I'm with Moses you're hating on Moses, and actually the temple is no longer needed. To, to worship the temple is to become an idolater. And there's no greater charge he could have made to the Jewish people in idolatry. It was the greatest sin, and yet he wasn't done. Yet he knew exactly what he was doing, and he wasn't done. And he, he ends his speech by saying, not only all that, but you have murdered the Messiah. The Jewish people in the first century, they were all awaiting this Messiah, or the Hebrew word means the anointed one, the one that is going to come finally and set free God's people for liberation and restore Israel to its proper place. And they missed him. They missed Jesus. And Stephen said, not only did you miss him, you killed him. Here's what he says. You stiff-necked people. He's using very prophetic Old Testament language. Your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even, here it is, killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. This, if there ever was a mic drop moment, this would be it. He is in front of the most powerful people in the land that literally hold his life in their hands. And for what he's going to say, he will give his life. And he doesn't care because he is going to bear witness. He cannot not bear witness. So the Jewish religious leaders, let's not miss this. They had a moment here, as we all do, to repent. They had a moment here to not have uncircumcised ears, to, as Jesus said again and again and again, do you have ears to hear? This was their moment. 
Would they double down on their foolishness or would they listen to this spirit-inspired man bearing true witness? We all come to places like this in our life all the time. And sadly, they did not listen. Here's what happened. Luke writes, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen, uh, the, the true witness, scholar N.T. Wright says that he was you know, convicted by the Sanhedrin, but the court on high, the court in heaven said, you are innocent of all charges. The, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they do what I think a lot of children do. I'm sure I did it when I was young, when their parents are telling them to do something. They're like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. They literally did the polar opposite of what repentance looks like. They doubled down on their foolishness. So, so what? What does this mean for us? That's the question we get to every Sunday here. So what? So what, John? Well, this is a weird story. Stephen seems pretty cool. You know, that kind of thing. What does it mean for our lives and our church? How does, it, how does it lean into answering the question, how can we be a faithful church in America in 2022? Well, one thing, we must bear witness to the right story. I, I didn't even know this mandate existed. I, I, just, I just discovered in 1987 the fairness mandate was overturned. I don't even, you may not even know about this. The fairness mandate... Uh, I think it was back in like uh, 49, all the way to 87, dictated that anyone giving the news in America had to give both sides of the story. Some of you are older may, may be familiar. Some of you might remember this man, Walter Cronkite. Does anybody remember Walter Cronkite? He was known as the most honest man in America, right? That's what news used to be. You can't find anything like that anymore. You may think your news station's like that. It's not, okay? You can't find it anymore. There's no more fairness mandate. Everybody we listen to that's telling the news, just hear this, is spinning a story. They're telling a narrative. They've got a narrative. They're trying to check their boxes. Just know that. You can agree with their narrative and like it and listen to them. Just know that. You're not getting the full story. And I think about that when it comes to the Jewish religious leaders. We can be harsh with them, but they love the Lord. They cared about God. They were really righteous, if you will, and how they went about worshiping. They were sacrificial, and yet they missed it all because they had this narrow story that they told themselves. They lived in this echo chamber with blind spots, and they just surrounded themselves with people that said the same thing. So the story got more narrow and more narrow and more focused on themselves, and they totally lost the narrative of God's story. And we should be horrified by that. We should be very nervous about that. We are, we are made to live into a story. Humans, people have done brain science. We are constructed, our brains are constructed to light up when we hear stories. We are storytellers. We're story people. I can be up here preaching. You can be nodding off. If I start telling a story, you're like, whoa, yeah, I'm listening now. 
We, we gravitate towards stories, and yet are we living into the right stories? We're all sinful. We're all broken. We all have blind spots. We all live in echo chambers, especially right now. Are we living in the right story? The terrorist who drove planes into the Twin Towers in 9-11, they were bearing witness to a story. It was just the wrong story. On January 6th, when people stormed our capital, they were bearing witness to a story. It was just the wrong story. Are we living into the right story? Are we bearing witness to the right story? Stephen remixed the story and retold the story in the proper way. This goes back to, if you remember, the end of Luke. We, we dealt with this passage on last Easter. And it's the road to Emmaus. And it's okay if you miss that or you're unfamiliar with the story. It's post-resurrection, a couple days after. It's mass chaos. The disciples are grieving. But they've also, there's rumors started that Jesus rose from the dead. It's just like this very weird emotional time. And these two disciples are walking home to Emmaus after kind of the weekend. And they're talking about all this. And then, lo and behold, Jesus shows up. And they don't know it's Jesus. And then Jesus starts opening the scriptures, and, and here's what he says to them. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's exactly what Stephen did. They took the, the story of scripture, and they remixed it and retold it, and they centered it on Jesus. Our friends at the Bible Project, if you're not familiar with them, they're awesome. Go check out their, their videos. Their, their mission is this, to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. That's the right story. That's it. If the story you're living and the story you're telling yourself does not lead to Jesus, if Jesus is not at the heart of the story, it's the wrong story. Can I get an amen? Amen. And I see so many followers of Jesus, and I'm guilty of this myself too, telling stories that are just gripped with fear and grasping for power and selling their souls to political party and divided and angry and unkind. They're bearing witness to the wrong story. It's killing the church. It's breaking my heart. We have to bear witness to the right story. We cannot lose our way, and our story must always lead to Jesus. We at New Hope believe that Jesus came, God in the flesh, gave his life on the cross to make us right with God and one another in the world. And that Jesus rose again from the dead, forever conquering and breaking the power of sin and death, and sits in power and glory at the right hand of God, reigning right now our king is on the throne. And we believe our king is ushered in his kingdom and ask us to be forebearers of that and outposts of that. And as we come together following Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, doing life and community, embodying Jesus, that we're outposts of the kingdom of God. And we believe that one day our king will return and make all things right. And we say, come Lord Jesus with all of our being. That's the story we're telling here. And frankly... That's the only story we want to tell. So my first so what is like, are we telling the right stories? I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, this entire Sanhedrin, they missed it. They missed it. What story are you telling? What story are you believing? What story are you leading into? It better be centered and always lead to Jesus. Secondly, true witnesses. What does a true witness look like? That's the opening question I ask you. They, are, they walk the talk. 
I, I uh, define witness in week one as someone whose testimony substantiates reality. A witness is someone, a true witness is someone whose words match their deeds. They walk the talk. That Greek word, if you remember, is the word martyr. So when you, you bear witness with your life, you're, you're doing a martyrdom. And there's also another idea behind this word. It's actually giving your life. So Scott, in his book, says Stephen was the first double witness. He was the first one who was witnessing with his life in word and deed, but actually also gave his life. Stephen walked the talk. Luke very, very intentionally, I think Stephen does as well, because Stephen did not have the Gospels, you know, he didn't have the scrolls, and they weren't written yet. All this was oral testimony from the apostles that he lived into. We don't know how he came to Christ. We don't know any of that. But he knew Jesus deeply. He knew how Jesus lived. He knew how Jesus loved. He knew the teachings of Jesus. And he absolutely modeled his entire life after Jesus, including the way he died. It's remarkable. So look at these similarities that that I think Stephen very intentionally lives into and that Luke also articulates clearly. Here is a slide that will go up. The similarities between Stephen and Jesus, especially at the end of their life. Both had trials before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Both were accused by false witnesses, both charged with blasphemy. Both testified about the temple's destruction. Both proclaimed the temple was made with human hands. Both committed their spirit to God. Both cried out with a loud voice. Both prayed for forgiveness of their persecutors. Both were buried by righteous people. And both were mourned by righteous people. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, near the end of it, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and puts them into practice, there's the key phrase, is like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. True witnesses don't just hear Jesus' words, they put them into practice. And Jesus wasn't just saying these words on a nice hillside holding children and petting lambs. He lived them out himself. He went to the cross and he embodied what that looked like, and so did Stephen. One of my heroes, uh, and I'll share about another hero later, but one of my heroes in the last decade or so is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And you may have heard his name before, you may not have, that's okay. He was a brilliant theologian in Germany right around the time of the rise of the Nazi regime. He was connected, his family was wealthy and influential, and he used that for good as long as he could. Pretty much, sadly, the, almost the entire German church quickly went with Hitler and followed Nazism, seeking power. But Bonhoeffer and some of his crew launched this underground alternative church to stay true at great, great cost to most of them. One of my favorite Bonhoeffer stories is uh, he was, I think it was around 1942, 1943. And if you know the history of the war, you know just things were spiking. Then everyone who's not with Hitler is trying to get out of the country. And so Bonhoeffer gets out of the country. He gets to come to America to do this kind of, you know, academic study at one of the universities. And he was literally here for three months. And he's like, I can't do it. And all of his family and all of his friends and everybody in America said, you cannot go back. You're on a watch list. Like literally your life is at stake. And he said, I can't not go back. He's like, one day Nazism is evil. It will fall. And one day the church of Jesus Christ will rise up in Germany again. I have to have the moral authority to be there when things are darkest, if I'm going to lead it back into the light. Whoa. You know, a man who walks the talk, and he indeed gave his life. Uh, He was put to death by the Gestapo on April 9th, 1945. Here's what one of the English officers who survived that day, who was in prison with Bonhoeffer, shared. 
Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I've ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8th in 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of all of us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered and they said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. They had only one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him and he took me aside and he said, uh, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. And the next day he was hanged. Jesus had a word for people who didn't walk the talk, and that word was hypocrite. You may be familiar with it. And that comes from Greek actors who would put on a mask. And I'm thinking about the church, and I'm not, I'm not coming at you with this. I'm coming at me as well. I'm coming at the church trying to answer this question. I think one of the deepest problems the church faces today is that it's filled with hypocrites, to be frank, myself included, that we don't walk the talk. What does the church need to be faithful in America in 2022? I think less hypocrites. And, and more martyrs. I think many followers of Jesus, myself included at times, are guilty of perjury. We're not bearing true witness in how we live our lives. Uh, Brennan Manning, uh, I'm a, friend, a big fan of his writing. I first heard this uh, song at the, or this quote at the beginning of a DC Talk song. Do you guys remember that band? Uh, like when I was a teenager. And he says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him with their lifestyle, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The early church was filled with double witnesses, filled with martyrs. The Romans thought that they could kill the Christians and it would snuff out the movement. <laughs> Little did they know the exact opposite happens. Uh, Tertullian, he was a church father, he said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What true is then is true now. Little do we know this as Westerners, but the church globally is experiencing the greatest revival right now in the history of the church. Not in the Western world, in the Eastern world. It is absolutely exploding. Love these stories of the Spirit of God moving. And yet, fueling that is these double witnesses. Over 360 million Christians today are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 5,898 Christians are killed for their faith. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings are attacked. This is per year. And 4,765 believers are detained without trial, arrested, and sentenced or in prison. The writer of Hebrews commands us, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. And I want to challenge us as a church to do that as brothers and sisters right now, largely who are not suffering her faith. I don't know if that'll change. But right now, we're called to bear witness, but we're not called to be a double witness right now. But many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. And next Sunday at 4 o'clock here at New Hope, we're going to have a specific uh, prayer time for the persecuted church. Let's not just talk about it. Let's walk the talk. And I want to really encourage you to join us. Uh, as you go out in the lobby in a little bit, there's a table uh, devoted to persecution in the church if you want to learn more. Finally, I think as we walk the talk, uh, and, and I look at Stephen's remarkable double witness, one thing as I was reflecting on this passage stood out amongst all others, and, and it's this idea of enemy love. And I would say it this way, the heart of the gospel is enemy love. The heart of the gospel 
is enemy love. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, you have heard that it is said, so that when he says that, he's referencing the Old Testament law. You've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's kind of like, that's what you've been brought up on. But I tell you, but I tell you, here's our Lord, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It is natural to love people who are nice to us. It is natural to love our friends and family. There is nothing exceptional. That's low-hanging fruit of being human. It is supernatural and speaks of the reality of the Spirit of God permeating our lives when we love our enemies. And again, Jesus lived this out from the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen did the same thing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a crowd of people throwing stones at your skull and you love them? You love them. (laughs) And again, what does it look like to be a faithful church? In America in 2020, I think it's a church that embodies enemy love. There is nothing exceptional about us being nice to people who are nice to us. It is absolutely revolutionary (laughs) to love our enemies in the name of Jesus. That will change the world. My friend Scott, he's an artist, Erickson, and he does these modern icons. We have this one um, in our house, and it just reminds me of this. This is, what, this is the heart of the gospel. This is what it looks like, right? That's counterintuitive <laughs> to do that. We could only do it through the Spirit of God. All right, one more story. Uh, one, of my, one of my earliest years, the earliest year I can remember, is a man uh, named Jim Elliott. Uh, he grew up in, uh, in middle America. He went to Wheaton College. He got great grades. He was a wrestler. He's like all-American kid. But he was floored by the fact that at that time, uh, one Christian uh, worked and ministered uh, for every 50,000 people outside the U.S. where there was one minister for every 500 within the U.S. That staggered him. And he's like, I can't, I can't, I can't just do the normal thing. I got to go. Even today, 3 billion of the 7.2 billion people in the world live in a region they have little access to the good news of Jesus. So that compelled him. And he said, I want to go. And he went with some friends. And they were going to go to Brazil. And he learned about this tribe called the Uccas, uh, named the Savages. No one messed with them because they were really, really dangerous. So he went and he learned language, and his wife Elizabeth came over. They had a child, and they got all ready. And from a Wycliffe jungle station in 1952, they had a plan, and they had begun dropping gifts to the Uccas uh, from uh, the skies, and they had had some positive encounters, kind of loosening them up a little bit. We're friendly. We're here for you. And uh, the fated day came in 1953. Uh, they left, and they said, hey, we'll be back. We'll radio in a couple hours, and, and they, they never did. And uh, they landed on the beach. They, they jokingly called it Palm Beach. And they walked forward. And all of a sudden, they heard these horrifying screams and cries. And it was a, like a war party emerged. And uh, later, people said they, that, that Jib talked about reaching for his gun and then remembering they had covenanted not to use any violence against these people. And quickly, they were all speared to death. And they found their bodies uh, floating in a river. Uh, Life magazine at the time had a 10-page article about this. It was kind of all over the world. Well, the story didn't end there. Uh, a year later, Elizabeth and uh, their, their baby and uh, the, the sister of Nate Saint, another man who was killed, went back and made contact with the Uccas. And the vast majority of the tribe became followers of Jesus. I remember as a kid, we had uh, one of the Uccas come to our church 
And I just remember this, he shot like a blow dart across the sanctuary and hit this target. So we gotta bring that back, that'll wake people up. I only recently heard this additional story that fits with, with the Stephen passage, and it's pretty remarkable. In 1989, uh, Olivia Fleming Lifefield, she was the widow of Pete Fleming, another uh, man who was martyred that day. She returned, and, and this tribe is now like largely Christian, and she was just having a conversation with one of the men who came out and speared her husband to death. And he shared this detail he had never shared. He said, on that day, he goes, we killed them, and then he said, all of a sudden, we heard this like mass choir singing. And she said, we, he said, we turned around. They didn't have the right language for it. They looked up in the trees. The only language they could describe it is like thousand flashlights in the sky and a heavily choir singing. <laughs> and then Olivia remembered the hymn that they all sang together before they sent the men out. It's a hymn called We Rest on Thee. And it goes like this. We rest on thee, our shield and defender. Thine is the batter, battle. Thine shall be the praise. When passing through the gates of pearly splendor, victors, we rest with thee. Uh, uh, Elizabeth found Jim's diary later, and she found this quote. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus, uh, thank you for the power of your spirit in our midst. And uh, it's a convicting passage. It is for me. God, there is hypocrisy in my life. There's ways that I get up and preach about things and articulate things, tell my kids to do things that I'm not faithful in following through. And I want to shore that up, God. I, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I desperately want to be a true witness. I want to walk the talk. And we need your spirit, God, to do that. Like, at times, I can't fathom enemy love. <laughs> I get blinded by anger. And, and I see people that I'm just like, ugh. And to think that the idea of loving those people seems so counterintuitive and it is going to take you breaking our hearts, God. It's going to take you giving us a deeper, more profound understanding of how well you have loved us. And I pray that that would begin happening in our community. I desperately want our community here to be following Jesus and be bearing witness. And we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe today meeting in cornfields and forest and in the dark of night, sharing little pieces of scripture because they don't want to lose all the Bible at once if it's confiscated and literally coming around the communion table and risking their life to do so. And we remember them today. Honor them with your presence, Holy Spirit. Comfort them. Give them your shalom. Give them hope permeating your heart. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. All God's people said, 